Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Platform Enterprise podcast, the show that platforms enterprising individuals and the incredible work they do. I'm your host, Rachel Donald, and I'm the founder of Platform Enterprise, a business built on the principles of the circular economy to protect the planet and empower people. Our first project, Platform, reimagines renewable in a really unique and beautiful way. We hope its launch next year will highlight and challenge the standard greenwashing practices that inspired its design. But I can't spill that tea until next year. So back to the show. For our first episode, I spoke with my good friend and passionate journalist, Charlotte Kilpatrick. Charlotte's expertise on intellectual property law made for a fascinating discussion on the coronavirus vaccine and the racism perpetuating its development. Now, this show was recorded in early November with a slightly different format to following episodes, but the information is more pertinent than ever. I urge you to listen to what Charlotte has to say about the misuse of IP laws being used to line the pockets of big pharma during a global pandemic, leaving developing nations with little to no access to this vaccine. If you want me to do a follow-up with Charlotte now that the vaccine is being released, do let me know on our Instagram, Facebook or LinkedIn pages at Platform Enterprise. Okay, that's enough of that. Esteemed listeners, I give you Charlotte Kilpatrick. Charlotte, thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, glad to be here. Uh, I should mention at this point that Charlotte and I are good friends. Um, so hopefully that will make for stimulating conversation rather than devolving into utter nonsense. But stick with us. So... Charlotte, what's your platform? The WTO needs to waive the TRIPS agreement to ensure equitable access of COVID-19 vaccines and therapies. Wow. What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? There's a story behind this. Um, mm -hmm. What does this mean? So the World Trade Organization, in a nutshell, is an agreement between member states mm -hmm. um, to trade on equitable terms, right? Mm -hmm. So it took stuff from the GATT, which I should remember that stood for, and turned into the WTO. Now, the mm -hmm. TRIPS agreement are, is the agreement on intellectual property rights. So to join the World Trade Organization, each country that joins needs to have certain mechanisms in place, certain agreements in place, so that they can ensure that they are not infringing on the rights of a company from a different country. So if you're Morocco and you want to join the WTO, you need to have courts, you need to have patent offices in place so that a country that sells in your market can be sure that you're not going to rip off their stuff. That's interesting. So it's kind of like we have a, a universal IP law or understanding. Understanding. Let's go with that. Let's go with that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's all well and good, you know, so, well, there's lots of, lots of criticisms about the TRIPS agreement for in many different industries, but mm -hmm. a big one is in the pharmaceutical market. So the mm -hmm. idea, if you're a pharmaceutical company, your line is, well, okay, it, this is true that it costs an enormous sum of money to develop a new drug mm -hmm. or therapy or whatever. Um, so if they're going to sell that, what they need is the monopoly that is awarded from a 20 year patent, right. which means that, you know, there's only this one drug and another company cannot make the same drug. Okay. Right. fine. Now there's some there, lots of debate about how much it actually costs to develop these drugs and whether or not the pharma companies themselves are creating these drugs, but let's just suspend that for a moment. So historically where this started to become an issue was with the HIV pandemic. Mm -hmm. So South Africa in the 1990s 
had huge rates of HIV. You know, something like one out of five adults had HIV. Mm-hmm. And there were therapies on the market, but there were a limited amount of therapies, antiviral, antiretrovirals, and they were very expensive because the pharma companies had a monopoly on them. South right. Africa is part of the WTO. So I believe, I don't want to get called out for this, I believe it was Nelson Mandela who went to the South mm-hmm. African parliament, legislature, what have you, and said, okay, we're going to suspend these rights and we need generics versions generics versions of these antiretrovirals yesterday so we can supply enough for our population just just to pause a second for 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 the layman yeah. i me just to make sure that i'm yeah. following um so essentially these patents say these 20 year uh, pharma patents are, are mm-hmm. kind of universal if you're in the wto it means that i can't go in and and make the same thing and and sell it on um the land or, or the the territory of a nation that's in the WTO and has a patent protected. Um, But what that meant was that in a nation like South Africa during the HIV crisis, Mm -hmm. one company, I'm assuming it was a foreign company, was it an American company? Yeah. Okay, so an American company. International company. So a conglomerate had the monopoly of selling these drugs to a nation where one in five people had the disease. And I assume... I mean, maybe couldn't afford it at the level that the yeah. Google or right. right. Okay. That's right. awful. It is. Um, but if you let's, you know, I'm trying for the sake of argument, let's present their argument. The pharmaceutical market industry sued the government of South Africa and said, no, yes, they did. <laughs> oh um, and their line is, well, if, if everyone can bust monopolies, patent, mon- patent rights, whenever they want, um, this creates business uncertainty for us. And we will be less likely to invest in these medications, which means yeah. fewer medications coming to market. Now, yeah. where we start to see parallels between HIV and COVID-19, let's unpack this a bit. So okay. what we had with HIV, so PrEP, Truvada, Truvada, which I can never pronounce Truvada, Truvada. The, the drug that is preventative? It's preventative, yes. And it will okay. lower your viral count. So if you're going to sleep with, basically, if your partner's HIV positive, mm-hmm. if they're on PrEP and you're on PrEP, there's like almost zero chance you're going to get HIV, right? Okay. So in theory, if we put all high-risk people on PrEP, we could probably get rid of HIV in like 10 years. Oh, ah, okay. So, we have so why don't we do that? Well, mm-hmm. ha <laughs> so, This is where it gets complicated. So PrEP... The pharma companies say, you know, we invested all this money to bring this, these drugs to market. Not entirely true. Right. Huge amounts of public funding went in to Travada, Traveda, PrEP. Traveda is the trademark name. Okay. All, right, all right. So the drug companies did not put forward all the risk that it takes to bring these drugs to market. So if you went for like an AIDS run, like I did in the 90s, if you were like, I'm going to mm-hmm. run a 5K for AIDS. Great. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. That money will go to research institutes. They're going to look for um, therapies, prep, whatever, which is then bought up by the pharmaceutical industry, which brings those drugs to market. It's a pipeline here. Government funding is being, and public funding is being used uh, for research that then (laughs) conglomerates are essentially getting them, buying and then getting the monopoly on to make a profit. Yes. This is a true Yes. And then they inflate these prices and, and charge Americans or whomever South Africans with AIDS inflated prices yeah, because yeah. the bottom line is 
profit. Now we can step back and look at that later about, you know, what's wrong with this model and whether or not it's their fault or society's fault or whatever. So where do we go with HIV, with, from HIV forward in time to COVID-19? Okay. So we have got in the West, let's take China and Russia out of the equation for a second. In the West, Mm -hmm. we have got five vaccines that are in the lead. Let me see if I can get these right. We've got Johnson and Johnson, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Moderna. I'm forgetting the. It's not Novartis. They're 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 farther behind. The, these are the guy. conglomerate names that are developing. Yeah, these are the these are the pharma companies that are getting these money. Right. Okay. All right. So, with the exception of Pfizer and whoever is their forward thinker on this, should have planned the war in Iraq because oh my God, this man was like, we're not taking the money. We are not <laughs> taking public money. We're going to do this on our own, which makes. <laughs> Someone like me, who's a journalist who wants to stick a pitchfork in the side of the pharma industry, be like, well done, man. Well done. <laughs> you did this all on your own. Fair a good pharma guy. Kind of, but we'll get to them okay. in a second. Okay. So let's go with Moderna. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is one of the um, vaccines that's in the lead. Moderna. You, got, yeah. Can, sorry, but can you, can, do you know of any other drugs that Moderna makes so that people might be able to. No, no. This right, is the okay. one that they're known for. Okay, so this is one of these pharma companies that was not on the scene. Um, It was not one of the top 10 that just catapulted to the top. Oh, with COVID. Yeah, with With the COVID vaccine. Okay. So the Trump administration under BARDA, um, Health and Human Services, gave Moderna nearly $1 billion. Yep, to do research for the COVID vaccine. Now, that's fine. Like, as a public person, you know what? We need a vaccine. We needed it yesterday. I think if you took a straw poll of people, they'd say we are okay with having public funding going into this. Sure. But how much private funding was going into it? Well, that's the question. So so, then what happened, let me turn this off, um, is that as part of their contract, they had to state how much of their own funding they were putting into this vaccine. And they just weren't doing it. So a public advocacy um, organization was like, hey, guys, you need to do this. So they released one small press statement where they admitted that 100% of the cost of the research and development was being reimbursed by the U.S. government. Wow. Okay. All right. And so far, you know what? That's fine. Um, Cool. Well, hang on. Let's stop a second. Uh, Is it fine? Like, yes, we need a vaccine. Uh, A lot of developed countries in the world are kind of racing to produce one. But Ah. when, especially in American people have only been given a $1,200 stimulus check each. Is it okay that a private company is being 100% publicly funded? Well, When I assume yeah. because of this WTO arrangement that you've just explained about patenting, they are then going to make the profit off of it? They are going to make, well, so this is what happened. So um, this is one of the top vaccines. So the reason that Moderna, even though it's being a, completely funded by the U.S. government. Let's take that aside. All of their doses, pretty much, have been pledged to the U.S. government. So the US, after the $1 billion we gave them for research and development, we gave them another $1.5 billion for 100 million doses. So what we're, ha- what we're seeing now, when COVID started, let's go back in time to March, there was this huge public outcry. We need a people's vaccine. This is going to belong to everybody. Everyone's going to chip in. We're going to do accelerated research. This is going to be a public good because everybody needs to be vaccinated. And someone rightfully said, one of these commentators, nobody is safe until Africa is safe. Because as long as the the virus continues on in some corner of the world, it's still out there and it can still come back and mutate. So we need everyone to be vaccinated. 
But what we saw over the coming months was, for example, Sanofi, which is a big French company, was in conversation with Donald Trump to have a massive pre-order of the vaccine. Now, Emmanuel Macron went in and called the CEO of Sanofi to the uh, Elysee Palace, gave him a big firm talking to, and was like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> Hang on, back up a second. Yeah. So then a, a French CEO of a, of a French pharma company yeah. went and had, you know, a cup of tea with good old Trump over Trump. there because yeah. Trump wanted to pre-order another couple of whatever yeah. before French people would have access to before it. Before French people would have access. But Jeez. what we had, this was like, I think back in March or April, whatever. But let's take it forward to today in, mm. in September. Well, last month. Oxfam released a report that said that 13% of the world's population, which is predominantly rich countries, Europe, so Germany, France, the Netherlands, Spain, the UK, and the US, have bought up over 50% of the supply of vaccines. Why? Pre-pledged. Because if all this talk- only 13%. Exactly. All this talk about having a people's vaccine was complete nonsense. What we're seeing is vaccine nationalism, which is a race for rich countries to buy all buy up all the pledges to the vaccine now, okay but can, can i sorry to interrupt but can yeah. i just ask what is the logic behind buying up more you know than per population head what what is the logic why would 13 percent of okay. you know the countries good buy 50 percent? good good question all right so if you're the uk right now the same report said there are five doses pledged per person now that makes no sense no you know Nobody, we don't need five in, injections. Um, actually, that would actually mean 10 because most of these vaccines need two injections. But the idea is that right now we're in stage three clinical trials and there's no guarantee that any of these are actually going to get market authorization. This is getting a drug all the way from preclinical trials through stage one, stage two, stage three clinical trials is very risky and most drugs fail. So when the pharma companies come to you and say the vast majority of drugs fail, like I've talked to patent attorneys who have been in the industry for their entire career. And one of them said to me, Cheryl, I have never filed a patent on a drug that went to market. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's incredibly rare that they actually wow. find, find something. So mm. the reason that we took five pledges is because we don't know which one's going to make, make it to market. And the UK government wants to cover all bases. Okay, fine. And you know what? On the surface, I don't have that much of an of a issue. You know, it's fine. Look out for your people. But this is where we get to the WTO problem. So what's happening in the world to be sure that poor people get the vaccine, as I explained to my baby today, mm -hmm. I was like, all right, little baby. So <laughs> there's this little pot over here that's called the COVAX Act Accelerator. And it's run by the Gabby Vaccine Alliance. So what this is, is it's a big pot. And pharma companies are making pledges to put vaccines into this pot. And that's going to go off to the poor people, the poor countries. All right. There is nowhere near enough in this pot to cover the, the population of the global south. So that Oxfam report that I was talking about said that even if all five vaccines make it to market, which is incredibly unlikely, that's not going to happen. That's, you know, a dream. The people in the global south will not be vaccinated until 2022. Meanwhile, the okay. rest of us can go to you know, raves and go out to parties and whatnot because we'll all have the vaccine. So there's a disparity here, which means, you know, continued trauma, continued lockdowns, problems with their economy, people dying because they don't have the vaccine. So this, Gav this ACT accelerator is over here. That's the pot with all of the vaccines going in. There is not enough. So that is the private sector 
who's getting all this public money saying, look at us, we're good guys. We're going to make donations into this pot. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, on the other side, we've got what we call the CTAP, um, which I forget how, what that stands for. It's the technology, tra- tra- technology access pool. So it's okay. basically, if I've got data or if I've got a patent or if I've got know-how into how to make these vaccines, I can throw it into this patent pool, this pot, so that people all over the world have access to it. So researchers, scientists, pharma companies who are in South Africa, for example, can take it and make their own vaccine. Oh, now, good. Now, that, that sounds good, except no. if you go to the CTAP, <laughs> who has volunteered any sort of intellectual property to the CTAP? IBM gave their entire, or was it Microsoft? Let's go to IBM. IBM, Microsoft, gave their entire patent portfolio. Great. That's not a vaccine. Wait. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so, wait, computers? So, yeah, computers. So you're seeing tech companies who are donating lots of stuff to this, but not a single uh. pharma company that has accepted public research has volunteered any of their intellectual property to the CTAP. It is empty. Oh, wow. It is completely empty. Oh, wow. So, no, but hang on, but like, okay, okay, yeah. okay, 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 but like, I mean, what really would they lose from doing that? Because if there, are, if the global south is not wealthy enough to actually buy their product, then what are they losing from giving uh, the patent away so they, that somebody yeah. can make it on the ground? Good question. What they want to do is licensing. So they're going to say, I've got the patent to this. You're a generics company in South Africa, India, Uruguay buy my license so I make a profit so that you can manufacture it domestically. That's what they want. Again, publicly funded money and you are going to make a profit off of underdeveloped countries. Now, okay, so where did this take us to the WTO? So last week, the week of October 16th, India and South Africa asked the WTO in Geneva, can we waive the TRIPS agreement? Okay, remind us what the TRIPS agreement is. The TRIPS agreement is is (laughs) the provisions of the WTO that ensures that intellectual property rights will be respected. Okay. So they said, can we waive this, which has been done before? Um, There's these things called TRIPS flexibilities um, so that we can have access to the intellectual property rights. Now, unsurprisingly, the wealthy countries were against the proposal. They said to India and South Africa, you have got compulsory licensing laws in your countries. Now, what a compulsory licensing law says is that if there's an emergency, we can go to the government, to the, to the parliament, legislator, whatever, and say, okay, we're going to compulsory license this. We're going to take it and we'll reimburse the pharma company later. But right now we have an emergency. We need to make this vaccine. Now, the representative of South Africa stood back up during this three-hour debate and said, listen, guys, I'm hearing what you're saying, but the problem is There are a lot of patents to these vaccines. There could be four or five vaccines. And if we have to do a line item debate on each and every one of these, it's going to slow everything down. And also, we need to start manufacturing this now before we even know if it gets to market. So once it does get market authorization, we've got it and we can release it. Also, what the TRIPS agreement says is that it's only good for domestic consumption. In on the continent of sub-Saharan Africa, There are not many countries that have got the capacity, other than South Africa, to my knowledge, that can, that's got a generics drugs industry that can make these vaccines. Vaccines are what we call biologics. They're not simple molecule drugs. They're very, very complicated to make. So you need a large amount of expertise to make these drugs. 
outside of South Africa, to my knowledge, I may be wrong, maybe one of your commenters can call in and say some other country's got the capacity to do this. Um, there's nobody else that can do it. So if you're in Botswana, if you're in Zambia, if you're in Zimbabwe, great that South Africa can domestically produce this, but they can't export it to you. Why so, not? Because that's against the that's against the WTO rules. If you're going to get a, a trips waiver, even with the trips flexibility, yeah, what with the trips flexibility um, that is against the rules. So what they're asking is, hey guys, we need to be able to do this now. So the rich countries were against it. The poor poor countries are mostly for it. They tabled it and they said they're going to come back and talk about it again in December. So that's fine. It's been suspended. What my gripe is, and I've read lots of you know comments from people in the pharmaceutical industry, they're saying, hey, they've got these compulsory licensing laws. If they just take our IP, then we will, again, the same arguments made with HIV, we will not have the incentives to reinvest money to find new therapies. And I'm like, you just, like Modera, you just got a billion dollars, a billion dollars. AstraZeneca, a billion dollars. And AstraZeneca, which is with... Oxford University, the Jenner Institute, it was a Jenner Institute that picked this thing off the shelf and started tinkering with it. Not AstraZeneca, the Jenner Institute. Okay, I don't know who the the Jenner Institute is. The Jenner Institute Institute is is a research body that's part of Oxford University that gets no private funding. It's all publicly funded. Okay. So that AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine is, again, publicly funded. Now, what we're also seeing and that pharma companies, you know, they've got good PR teams that are probably better than I could do for them. They're coming out saying, hey, look, we're great guys. Um, we are going to, for example, license, have fair licensing. So AstraZeneca said, you know, licensing is not going to be an issue. Um, we're working with the Serum Institute of India, which is a generics company, to produce more doses to help the global south. Now, the Serum Institute said, best case scenario we could produce 700 million doses of this vaccine. Even my daughter, who's six, was like, Mommy, I learned in school there are more than 700 million people in India. I was like, I know, baby. That's close to a billion. That's not even not enough. That's just over enough for half the population of India. So we're seeing these problems coming around that pharma companies, even though they're, and they are right, there's huge amounts of collaboration going on, They're putting their best foot forward to bring these vaccines to market as quickly and as safely as they can. My fear, and we should have learned this from HIV, is that they are going to put profit before saving human lives. And this is where the bigger philosophical issue, I mean, I talk to these people all the time, is they are private companies. And we as a society have given private companies the incredible responsibility of developing drugs to save people's lives with the incentive of making money. And if they do not make money, they are not going to do this. So when they're saying we are trying to make money, it's like, you know what? I can't say anything to you. That's that's what we did. Yeah. That's how society decided that that should be in the realm of the private sector. That's a really good point. Yeah. So if I, as a journalist who doesn't like that, I'm going to complain about it. We need to propose solutions. They're like, okay, you need to make money to make this happen. Granted, they made $86 billion last year in that profit. So that $86 billion is what I call the desperation coefficient. You know, how much are desperate people or governments willing to pay for a drug? But then again, the same government, same people decided that the private sector should develop these drugs. So 
that is where we are in the vaccine race. Does the public sector have enough money to develop these drugs? It could. It How? could. It could. All right. So what we what has been proposed, um, Jeremy Corbyn proposed this in Medicines for the Many. Bernie Sanders proposed this back in 2017 is what we call delinkage. So the idea behind delinkage, and it, this is supported by lots of HIV advocacy groups, is that the government puts forth a big pot of money and says, OK, we're going to put forward. Let's make up a number. Ten billion. Ten billion dollars. Um, and this is the reward that this company will get for bringing this drug to market. So you've got different companies coming together and competing for this pot of money. That is their reward. That is what they get. So you delink the patent monopoly from as an incentive to bringing a drug to market. So there is no monopoly once the drug. So there would so, be no patent on the drug. Exactly. So everybody right. could in theory, reproduce the drug. But, okay. Hmm. What about innovation, though? I mean, um, should the government be the organization kind of calling the shots about what is and isn't necessary at this time? Or is one of the things that's quite exciting about the private sector not that they can, you know, get ahead with innovation or certainly, you know, not just stay ahead of the curve, but create the curve in terms of what's possible? That's a very interesting question. So the Brookings Institute wrote a paper that's addressing that very question, looking at the huge amounts of money that the pharmaceutical industry invests in innovation. And to be fair, there is a lot of innovation going on. What has been happening over the past 10 years, though, is that that innovation is costing more and more and more money. The idea that the Brookings Institute found and that I've heard from people in the industry is that the low-lying fruit of drug discovery has already been found. It is costing more and more billions to develop new drugs. Now, what's also happening, it's in the private sector. Again, you are your motivation is to make money. So you're going to develop drugs for things that make a lot of money. Now, one of the problems we're having, if it wasn't COVID, that would, if you had asked me a year ago, Rachel, what's going to kill us all? I've been like, it's not going to be a virus. It's going to be a super bug. It's going to be antimicrobial resistance. It's going to be getting gonorrhea because that is almost incurable. Okay. <laughs> Don't get gonorrhea. Okay. <laughs> we have gone through all the lines of, of um, antibiotics on that because, big summary about how antibiotics work, an antibiotic, the best analogy I've heard is it's a fire hydrant. It's there, but you don't want to use it because what happens is that people get resistant to it. But if you're a pharma company and you've invested millions of dollars in something, you want it to be used. So you're not going to invest millions of dollars in something that is desperately needed that will only be used as a last line of defense. And even the pharma industry, um, GlaxoSmithKline, their last CEO came out and said, this isn't working. Yeah. We're going to get a superbug. So the government, and so for things like malaria, things like Alzheimer's disease, which takes so much time to research, that pharma companies really don't want to look into it because it's dead end because they're not making any money off of it. Because the time that from the beginning, when they start filing the patent, to the time they get a drug to market and they can test it because you have to wait for the old people to really get it. And that could take 20 years. Your patent's gone off. You don't have a monopoly. You're not going to make a lot of money off of it. So we are seeing huge gaps that the pharma industry is not covering. Meanwhile, what they're going after are the multi-million dollar drugs that cure cancer. 
So the Brookings Institute said, you know, there's a lot of competition for the big money makers and not a lot for the smaller, you know, but still important things that kill you, like antimicrobials, like Alzheimer's. So where the government could step in is to say, okay, we this is what's killing people. This is where we need a solution. Now, another thing, and this was a point that was brought up to me by, I won't say her name, a source at a um, one of these like biologics cutting edge companies that go in and like tinker with your DNA and get really cool um, cancer therapies. Crisp stuff, right? Yeah, like super cool stuff like that. And she was very articulate. And she said to me, you know, cutting edge, making millions, million dollar cancer therapy. She said, the problem that we have in the pharma industry is we are investing billions and billions of dollars in things that cure people and almost nothing in, in that which makes people safe like what keeps people healthy we are investing in cures but not preventative medicine yeah yeah so the pharma industry that 86 billion is going into curing people if we could take that 86 billion and reinvest it in things like lifestyle changes like maybe looking at the farm bill and all the corn syrup that goes into our foods and keeping people healthy maybe we wouldn't need the next generation of cancer therapies because not that many people would be dying from it. Where you need to put your money is what's going to keep the most amount of people healthy and happy longer. And the way that the pharmaceutical industry is set up right now is that a small portion of the population will get a few years added onto their lives. Everybody else gets diabetes and gets insulin. Okay. I have a couple of things I want to, that yeah. I want to pick at. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, just going back to medicine for the many Mm-hmm. Um, if there was like a prize, a $10 billion prize, for example, for a drug that was going to be developed mm-hmm. um, and everybody waits to develop it correctly in order to get the prize and then you don't get the patent. I mean, how do the companies that spent years developing something but then didn't get there fast enough get paid? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we regulate um, problems in like the testing and the, the different clinical trials? Because I mean, undoubtedly people would start to cheat, wouldn't they? Or they would start to cut corners because good, then good limited resources and, and make it even more limited. No? Yeah. All right. So good question. So as far as the safety goes, you would still have the FDA or whatever, the European Medicines Agency, whatever it is, the equivalent of the, in Europe of the FDA. So you would still have FDA approval for each stage of the clinical trials. So the safety mechanisms are still in there. But good question. If you've got like five companies all competing for the same pot of money, they've got no guarantee that they're going to cross the finish line first. But what happens when you've got these stage one, stage or preclinical, stage one, stage two, stage three clinical trials is you've got like a competition, you know, survival of the fittest. You would start with five, but after you got through preclinical trials, maybe one would drop out and be like, "Mm, we're not good. Then you've got four. And that's actually the most expensive. That's the most risky one is the preclinical um, stage one clinical trials. Once you get to stage two, stage three, you're doing good. And then if you get two drugs to market, I'm going to be like, okay, we've got two people, stage three clinical trials. This is great. You could have a conciliatory like, oh, you made it. You got second place. We're going to cover your cost of development. You made it to market. You get the pot of money. Yeah, but it still doesn't really cover like for the for the original companies that maybe, you know, invest millions in the preclinical trials and and can't make it. But that's what's already happening now. That would mm. be no different from what's happening now. And again, the vast Except majority incentive incentive that they'll get one that gets it to market. But that's really the model of we need to cross the finish line 
wouldn't be any different under delinkage than it is now because there's, you still have no guarantee you're going to make it to the finish line. Right. Okay. So yeah, the pharma industry will tell you that they spend between 17 and 20% of um, profit reinvesting in research and development. That's kind of BS. Okay. Because there's a lot of ways that they come up with that figure. It's not entirely true, but still it's an astronomical number. Um, so that risk would still be there under the steam linkage system. It would just be that you do not have the monopoly. You get a reward. So yes, pharma companies, I mean, I don't want to sugarcoat it. They would be making less money, but it's kind of like when I'm talking to these people every week and they say, you know, we need these profits so we can reinvest. And I'm like, how many billions do you need? Do your shareholders need to feel <laughs> satisfied? Mm. So that's, kind of, I mean, there are, Maybe this would never work. Um, there are lots of efforts right now to move to what we call open science. So we have open tech. So like Mozilla Firefox, I think I read was like an out, it's like one of these products of open tech where, you know, you, everyone puts their algorithms and stuff into a public platform. Everyone can tinker with it and come up with new stuff. Great. We're beginning to do that with medicine. But what's happening is this is all, you know, universities, public research institutes who are doing this research preclinical stage one clinical trials that is then being bought up by the pharmaceutical industry. So I'm happy because what happens if you have an open platform, if you're in Japan and someone in Brazil is doing the same thing, you can tell, oh, hey, they failed doing this thing. Let's not do it again. We know it doesn't yeah. work. So it cuts down, you know, it speeds things up. So that's great. We, but then there's the argument of, okay, it's going to be bought up by a private company, and then they're going to turn around and charge us money for what we already paid for. So you're essentially paying twice. So, But if you're, again, if you're in like Uruguay or Jordan or wherever, um, you don't have a domestic pharmaceutical industry. You are completely reliant on international companies and generics companies to supply your populations. So for COVID, they're in a very tenuous situation which is why the WTO, I would argue, needs to step up and do the right thing and decide that human life is more valuable than these pharma companies making money off of our own investment. I mean, it, it's, it seems ignoble to, to argue the opposite. Well, they are. So. I mean, yeah, they are. They're saying that South India and South Africa have ways that they can get around this. And if time was not an issue, I would say maybe. But time is an issue. Every day that a school stays closed, that a child is at home, that a business is shut, that's a huge cost, not just in money, but also in mental health. Mm. And yeah. what does not kill you today? You know, how many teenagers are picking up drug addictions right now or women are being traumatized by, you know, in domestic violence that's going to take years off their life? I think for me, what I think what is um, quite interesting, quite frightening about schools being closed in developing countries is that investing in young girls education is proven to be one of the uh, most solid and quickest way to actually develop a nation. Uh, increasing education is key, increasing it for girls so that they don't get married off so that they don't fall pregnant at a very young age um, is absolutely vital. And these, yeah, and these girls are you know, being kept away from school for their own safety, rightly so. But it is absolutely crucial for a nation's, not just an economic health right now, but cultural and economic health over the long term to, to get everybody back into back school. In school. Exactly, exactly. And what a lot of reports I have seen 
have said is that COVID, we've had, we've made huge advancements over the last 10 years in getting girls to school and developing economies and taking people out of poverty. And all of that is going to get wiped out by COVID if we don't take the necessary steps. And one of the necessary steps is getting these vaccines to people as quickly as, as we can. Now, one of these in-house um, patent attorneys I was speaking to told me that her other <laughs> concern is not just in making these vaccines, it is in getting anti-science people to take the vaccine. Yeah, I mean, this is a whole other... That's a whole other thing. Yeah, she was like, you know, I don't think in America most people are going to take this vaccine. I was like, shoot up my arm. Here it is. I will be your guinea pig. I do not care. But she's genuinely concerned um, with the temperature in America right now and all the anti-vaxxers, that there are enough people who, even after all of these colossal efforts, are not going to take it. Yeah. So, yeah, that's another concern. I uh, I know a couple people who uh, aren't that keen to to be first in line to take it, not because they're anti-vaxxers, they're not anti-vaxxers, but they're more like, meh, don't want to take something that doesn't hasn't gone through the same time frame of rigorous clinical trials, especially when, as you said, I mean, vaccines are extremely complicated biological compounds. They are extremely complicated. Um, yeah. And it's looking like most of the vaccines, I think except the J&J one, but someone might want to double check me on that. Most of the vaccines that are in the running to cross the finish line first are two shots. Okay. Okay. And not only are they two shots, they're two shots that need to be um, kept in near freezing temperatures. Mm. So it sounds great for us, but if you're, you know, BFE in Botswana, getting a frozen vaccine and you need two shots to your population is going to be a huge effort. And what, yeah. And one thing I think has been really interesting over the last year when it seems like all hell has been broken loose. I I am proud of America that we're having this Black Lives Matter movement. I think it's way too late. I mean, not too late, but it is. We should have had it. It's way overdue. Um, And what we're seeing from companies and if you go on LinkedIn, all these companies are saying, yeah, we believe that Black Lives Matter. And, you know, certain politicians say, yeah, we believe Black Lives Matter. And what I think COVID is going to do is prove it. If you think that black and brown lives matter, okay, put your money where your mouth is. When are these people going to get this vaccine? And are you going to prioritize rich white countries over poor brown ones? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. Yeah, absolutely. Now, tell me, what would happen then if um, if a corner of the world, or even, or even you know, let's kind of bring it back more into our periphery, um, if you're in the United States or the UK and you've got a couple of anti-vaxxer neighbors <laughs> and they don't want to take the vaccine, I mean, how many people have to be vaccinated in order to eliminate this virus? What happens if there's a subsection that don't take it? What happens if there's a nation in sub-Sahara that doesn't get it? I mean, how, how vital is it that everybody get this vaccine? Good question. Good question. All right. So speaking to my source in the biotech industry, she said roughly 50% would need to be vaccinated. 50. 50%. So America, I think we're at 320. Let's make up a number, like around 300 million people. That's that's a lot of people. And you would want to prioritize the vulnerable. So healthcare workers, the elderly, they would need to go first in a perfect world. Let's pretend that's going to happen. But if you're in an anti-vaxxer community and you've got someone walking around, okay, What I see happening is it's going to be 
people of one ideology who might believe in science are like, okay, shoot me up in the arm and I'm going to protect those who don't believe in science. Um, that's one scenario I see happening. Now, as far as like the U.S. being vaccinated under Trump and even before Trump, let's be honest, um, getting from the global south to the global north is not as easy as just jumping on an airplane. All right, you need visas or a lot of people are trafficked in. So even if you have a random person who has not been vaccinated who gets into the UK, it's probably not going to be the end of the world if over 50% of the population is vaccinated. What's going to happen, though, is that, the, is that COVID is going to keep churning in the Southern Hemisphere, wrecking their economies. Meanwhile, we're going on and we're just perfectly fine. Oh, wow. That's, and, that's a and, very grim picture. And what I'm going, I'm very curious to see, remember how I talked about the ACT Accelerator? So the ACT Accelerator is where all these volunteer doses are going. So I spoke to um, Doctors Without Borders this, this summer, and I asked her, the woman who's in charge of their, I think it's vaccine advocacy. I said, okay, so I'm talking to AstraZeneca. I'm talking to the Jenner Institute developing one of these vaccines. They're saying that they are making 700 million doses with the Serum Institute of India for underdeveloped countries. And I said, do you know which countries are going to get this first? She said, no, nobody knows. They don't know. And the big philosophical question that we're looking at is, how are they going to decide which countries go first? You mean from this volunteer? From this, this volunteer, volunteer yeah, from dosages. From this part of doses. Now, the World Bank has a ranking of countries, and it's completely based on what we call gross national income, GNI. That's the only indicator they put in. Okay, fine, whatever. So it takes you from the lesser developed country, country middle income country, high income country. But within these brackets, there are sub brackets. So you've got upper lower developed countries. You've got lower middle income countries. Okay. So the ACT Accelerator, when I was looking at it this summer, was looking at lower income, lower developed countries would go first. So your Burkina Fasos, your Angolas, your Dominicas, your Hades, they are... They're going to get it first. Okay. We can say, okay, good. But if you're Uruguay, if you're Jordan, if you're Morocco, still countries that don't have the resources of Norway or the UK or the US, what are they going to do? Right. Okay. So, the, so what you're saying essentially is that there's a, a big chunk in the middle a big that's going to get lost between those that the West, um, yeah. you know, really, really sympathizes for and you know, yeah. are looking after ourselves, essentially. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And these are very populated countries. Yeah. If you're Indonesia, hugely populated country. Nigeria, yeah. huge country. And also, I mean, isn't that, uh, I, I've, you know, the, the arbitrary assignment of who deserves to live over somebody else. I can't even get my head around that. Um, but also on a logical level, I mean, surely it would make sense to protect highly populated countries from which and to which we travel you know in a selfish way like you would think Indonesia, so. morocco i mean oh, all of these places. everyone wants to go find themselves on a beach in bali well, yeah <laughs> exactly yeah. So exactly um yeah and what i'm also seeing so there are seven billion people in the world let's vaccinate half let's go let's go up let's go four billion the 
just the sheer logistics of this. Again, two doses have to be kept in freezing temperatures. How the hell are you going to do this unless everybody's on board making these vaccines? So when the pharma company, yeah, the pharma companies come out and say, oh, yeah, it's fine. We can do it. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I keep reading about it. How wool is like this sort of natural um, refrigerating thing. It keeps cold things cold and hot things hot. I need to start knitting. I, I, I don't think. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's something you can knit. But insulation. There you go. Oh my it's God, a natural can imagine, insulation. Can you imagine all of the old ladies of the world knitting for COVID? <laughs> I like that. I'll start knitting for COVID. I think they'd be more likely to do that than the pharma companies actually start donating their technology but light it up. <laughs> the old ladies of the world come to save you with their knitting needles. Oh God. Um, but 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 yeah, this is this is going to be a logistical nightmare. And I'm very curious how, for example, AstraZeneca, who says, Yeah, if we cross the finish line, we'll make all these doses. How? What like as I said, like what flying carpets of logistics? do you have to do this? Like even the glass vials, when I was talking to people this summer about making the vaccines, okay, let's, again, let's not do 7 billion, let's do 4 billion. 4 billion glass vials, except you need two doses. That's 8 billion glass vials. Yeah. That's a yeah. lot of Jack Daniels bottles. <laughs> Are they donating? I haven't heard I don't about know. <laughs> They're recycling and everyone's going to drink out of cardboard. I'm okay no. with that. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> so, um, so I mean, I, there's just going to be so many issues, I think. And it's, even last night, so for the listeners who are unaware, um, France, we are Thursday. So last night was Wednesday. Wednesday the 28th, Emmanuel Macron came on French TV and announced the second lockdown. And in his speech, he said that his scientists are telling him a vaccine will be ready as of next summer. Not Donald Trump's preferred date of next Tuesday. Sorry, Donald. <laughs> uh, so we're looking at next summer, which means I may or may not be able to go to Primavera in Barcelona. Um, <laughs> putting my own selfish desires first. <laughs> so, yeah. And then I feel like next summer is when a lot of truths are going to surface. You know, the pharma pharmaceutical industry right now is looking all glowing. But we're going to see what they're made of next summer and see who gets this and who doesn't. Ideally, it should be the vulnerable. It should be the NHS workers or whomever in whatever respective country goes first. Do I think that's going to happen? No, I do not. I think the rich countries are going to vaccinate all of their people. And if you're a nurse in, you know, Johannesburg, good luck to you. Right. So what can what can be done at this stage? Pressure on the WTO. That's that's where I'm. And it's such a small thing. It's not in the news, which, of course, it's hard to understand. It's really hard to understand. But this WTO meeting in December, I think, is going to be really telling to let countries take these medications and make them on their own. Um, that's going to be a big thing. That's one thing that can be done. Um, I, I don't know how to convince an anti-vaxxer to take a vaccine. That will also help. Yeah, personally, I'm not too concerned. <laughs> it definitely makes sense i mean if these vaccines are predominantly publicly funded it absolutely makes sense that they wouldn't be patented that they would be available for all that the technology or the knowledge would be donated um, and also hopefully if we come out of this covid vaccine there will also be a rush to um create 
domestic markets and domestic industries of pharmaceuticals in different countries. I mean, in the whole continent of Africa, well, or like the southern part of Africa, there's only South Africa that can domestically produce. As far as I'm aware, yeah, that's pharmaceuticals. Yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, that's absurdly dangerous. It is. It is how reliant we are in just a few places to make these things, and it's not like. I mean, we can get back into the, the TRIPS agreement of why it is kind of beneficial to rich countries as, as opposed to poor ones. So China, for example, China over the last, China's intellectual property system was born 30 years ago. It's very, very new. And if you were around 15 years ago, a lot of companies were complaining about how China was ripping off people's intellectual property, you know, just infringing right, left and center. And now, Actually, it was as last week, the week before, China introduced their most recent um, amendments to their patent laws. And talking to in-house people, as I have this week, from different tech companies in Germany, they're like, this is great. China's actually got better protections than many Western countries. It's fantastic. But in For their own patents. Yeah. Okay. But, but why is this important to, you know, Botswana? Is that the way that you learn? All right. So I don't know if you guys ever, there was a really great Lily Tomlin movie that came out in the nineties with Maggie Smith in it. And it was about like these rich old British women who were living in Florence during world war two. It was really cute. I should remember the title, but I remember Lily Tomlin giving this discussion to this young little boy who wanted to grow up and be a painter. And she said to him, if you want to be a painter, you've got to learn from the greats. You've got to copy the Michelangelo's. You've got to copy the Da Vinci's. You've got to learn by doing. But if you are Botswana, if you're a young boy or a girl and you want to come up with the most recent technology for, I don't know, cell phones, what you're going to do is you're going to take a cell phone apart and you're going to copy it. You're going to remake it and then you're going to improve on it. But that whole process takes years and years and years and years. But in order to be able to copy it, you need to let go of intellectual property rights. You need to learn by doing. You need to learn by cheating and ripping off from something, as China did for 30 years before they had intellectual property rights. So when poor countries sign on to the TRIPS agreement, what they're basically doing is before they are fully developed, is they're stifling their own innovation because a Western com com company is just going to come in and say, why are you copying us? And they're like, well, dude, we have to. We have to learn how to do this on our own. You need to give us some space to be able to do this. Now, there are some flexibilities in the TRIPS agreement. So the second piece of news um, that came out of the WTO last week was that countries like the Sudan asked for delays to signing on to trips. Okay, and they were granted it, and that's fine. But I think there needs to be a discussion that if we believe in capitalism and we believe in you know innovation and that's what drives the economy, we need to give people free reign to innovate. And if you're stifling people by a foreign company coming in and saying, don't do that. I mean, I had no joke. I had a patent attorney from a pharmaceutical company who said, you know, well, it's the West that's developing all this stuff. Why should we be giving it away? And I'm like, well, it's not that we're smarter. It's not like we're the best scientists. I mean, some of the most innovative children I have ever seen were in Senegal who were making, you know, soccer balls out of rubber bands. And they've got, you know, amazing capacities for innovation. It's just they're not given the opportunity. So if you educate them, as you said, educate girls, pour money into education, they will catch up with us. And I think in many ways surpass us. But there are laws that a lot of people don't know about that are very tricky and complex to understand that are um, stifling that. And now we see it with COVID. Right. Okay. So the whole problem with patenting isn't just the individual drugs that are being patented uh, in this WTO uh, TRIPS agreement, but also the fact that 
certain yeah like you need certain steps to walk down certain paths and these things are still patented even though it's yeah. old to us and we're using it to to keep yeah. building the mountain other yeah. people are still standing amongst a pile of rubble because they're not allowed to simply put two blocks on top of each other yeah correct yeah these are some issues that I think need to be discussed. Um, it's really it's really fascinating because if you think about, okay, I'm just going to take the US and the, the East and the West Coast. Um, and if you take New York and California and you told one of them that they weren't allowed to use the other's, you know, innovations in order to, to develop, I mean, um, that would be hellish for the nation. And it seems so strange that we can't see how hellish it is for the planet, for the globe, for, for globalization as well, to not let everybody catch up and to not let everybody innovate. Like we're only going to benefit. We're only going to benefit if all the brightest minds have access to the, the best material and the you best think tools. So. The economic argument is there. Yeah. But, and I, and when I've mentioned this to people in, you know, international pharmaceutical companies, um, it's not that they're against it. But they're still like, we need business certainty for what we've already got. And they're like, well, what do you propose, Charlotte? Just getting rid of all patents? And I'm like, sometimes I think there needs to be nuance. <laughs> I mean, no one's going to die if they don't get an iPhone 11. Said, <laughs> but they will die if they don't get, you know, cancer therapies. Not everything. Oh, hello, Scribbles. Not everything is created equally. And I think we need to have a really nuanced conversation about the difference between a need and a want. So you're not going to have, you know, the next generation of cell phones if the kid who could have developed that cell phone dies of malaria. And one area that's not getting a lot of research money is malaria. Why? Because it's poor people who get it. And Cheryl Cole. Did she get it? <laughs> yeah, it was like, I can't believe I even just remembered that. I just remember it being splashed hilarious. over the front page of, of the Daily Mail back when she was still Cheryl Cole. She was oh. uh, traveling somewhere, and yeah, she got she got she got the bug. Oh my god, I'm probably going to be listening that to her tonight. Now, <laughs> when you put that in my head, I'm listening to Cheryl Cole. Sorry, she got malaria. That's, that's pretty rough. You know, I mean, you know, she got flown back, and what do you know? Survived. Oh wow! Yeah, I got malaria when I was in West Africa. Did you? Um, yeah, oh, <laughs> everyone wow. gets it. Um, if you're, if but then you're, how do you, so why is there such a big treatment problem then? A lot of people do die from it. Um, it's pretty much a guarantee that you will get it at some point. It's just, it's like any, from what I can understand, it's how much you get in your system. Like I remember some doctor telling me at a barbecue that Charlotte, if you had as much malaria in your system as that kid over there, who's 12 years old, who's from here, you'd die. And I was like, great. So I think it's a, a matter of how much you get. Um, there are preventatives that you can take, but the preventatives that were on the market like 15 years ago when I had to take them would pickle your liver or something or give you like weird hallucinogenic nightmares, which weren't always weird hallucinogenic. Sometimes they were really nice. And, and, and really these bad. things passed clinical trial. Yeah. The Gates Foundation cured water blindness, I think. I, I see. I keep seeing Bill Gates's name tied a lot to to vaccines and to danger, or into how he's injecting people with tracking devices, or God knows what. <clears throat> I feel like people are worried about tracking devices. Like I'm so addicted to my phone. Like I'm constantly like, oh, there's a Facebook status update. Jeremy Corbyn got suspended from the Labour Party. Oh, 
Thank you, phone. Um, you know, we're all addicted to it. So we're worried about tracking device. Just don't. Oh, I don't know. Or maybe it's some like, uh, com- like computer, you're going to get taken over or whatever. Right. Like zombie nation. I don't know. I, people just really, 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 really like to blame somebody else for. It, it's comforting, isn't it? I like to blame other people for my problems all the time. I'm so good at it. <laughs> so good at it I think it's I think it's an interesting argument and probably an important argument as well because I mean it's so easy I think when we're talking about an industry like pharma it's so easy to call it big pharma capital B capital P and then somehow we've you know personified this industry as an evil greedy uh machine uh rather than it being made up of of a certain culture uh, and of people and everyday people and They're some good people probably are, are nice folks. I have yes, of, of course, of course, of course. I mean, if there was an industry of sociopaths, we would have noticed by now. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I think you know what. Personally, I like to to ask the question. You know, what can we do that's different? Now, I'm not naive enough to think that um, change will be effective if it's only from the bottom up. But in what way do our individual um, microcosms of culture then create? capital B capital P culture you know um and so like the fact that this isn't being talked about you know the danger to the global south the fact that there there aren't enough vaccines and doses being donated the fact that our governments have quite happily bought up 50% of the supply even though we're only 13% of the world like it's not being talked about because it's not, I mean, essentially you could argue that we, we don't see it as that much of a problem when your back's up against the wall. As you were saying, Black Lives Matter, well, prove it. Prove it. Now is the time to, prove, to prove it. it. Yeah. I think one, because I would think about why isn't this talked about a lot. Um, for one, I, I want to go a little bit easy on the journalists, such as, you know, people who write for newspapers I wish I was writing for. Um this has been a really horrible year. There have been lots of news cycles. Like if you're a journalist and want stuff to cover, oh my God, you've got Donald Trump and narcissism. You've got, you know, elections in the US. You've got Bernie Sanders, uh, sorry, um, Jeremy Corbyn getting kicked out of the Labour Party. All this stuff going down in France with terrorism. Then you've got COVID. Then you've got the Black Lives Matter. Then you've got next week, which is going to be like apocalyptically awful. Okay, so you've got a lot. And when I think... What I'm worried about is what I think is going to happen is next summer or next fall, when we see the déroulement, when we see these vaccines coming out, that's when the media is going to be like, oh, right, the global south, they don't have anything. Whereas I'm here like, what are we now, Uh, Rachel? We're October 29th saying this is happening now. If you kept track of it now, if their feet were put to the fire now, we could avoid something. And I can... Almost here, all of the social advocates are going to come around next fall and be like, we told you so. We told you this was happening. I was on the phone Monday with Stop AIDS in the UK, um, asking them, like, do you see parallels? And they're like, yes, history is repeating itself with COVID-19. We've been here before with HIV. We know what these pharmaceutical companies do. And it's kind of like people who elect Donald Trump or re- want to reelect him and think, oh, he just won't be racist this time. Who okay. Says that? I don't know. <laughs> Does anybody okay, well, oh, just because he grabbed pussies before doesn't mean he'll grab them again when he's president? I'm like, okay, you know, probably only because he can't swing fast enough now, you know. <laughs> but you know, that's like, why do we think that their farming companies are going to act any more nobly? 
Yeah. You know what? Sorry, I have, I have a question for you then. My final question. Um, what do you think could be the differences and what will happen in the future if it's a Trump presidency or a Biden presidency in respect to what you've been talking about? That's a very good question. I actually wrote about that this week. What Excellent. Would, Hit me. What would, what would be different? Now, on the research and development side, um, Oh, God, I'm trying to sum this up succinctly. Um, basically, the U.S. Patent Office uh, under Donald Trump has made it a lot easier for pharma companies to file patents. What that means is they get more monopolies. Now, if Biden goes in, depending on who he nominates, I'm guessing he's not going to nominate a right winger like Trump did. Um, hopefully it will make it more difficult for them to get their monopolies. But when it comes to COVID-19, I hate to say this, I don't think much is going to change on the front of vaccine nationalism. Presidents are elected to protect their populations. As much as I even love Jimmy Carter, who I think is like the nicest, let's just go with nice, like the nicest US president. I think even if old Jimmy Carter was like 90 years old as president again, um, I don't think it would change. I think what we need are citizens, people, advocacy groups saying, putting pressure on organizations like the WHO, World Health Organization, the WTO, and on pharma companies to say, you know what? Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Brown lives matter. Um, so I don't, I really do not see this election changing much for the global South. Where I see it changing perhaps for the US is whoever's in power legitimizes their narrative. So if you're a racist, and Donald Trump is your president, you feel it's a little bit better. You feel like it's not so bad to be racist because the president's doing that. If you want to grab a pussy, the president's grabbing a pussy. You know, it makes you feel a little bit more legitimate. If you're anti-science and you've got a president denying that climate change is real, um, that makes it more legitimate. I think if you've got a Joe Biden who is president, who is, for all of his flaws, um, pro-science, I'm hoping that that will legitimize science and that hopefully more people will be willing to take a vaccine. Um, I'm not confident that that's actually going to happen. Maybe. I'm trying to be optimistic. Yeah, the anti-vaxxers will sort themselves out one yeah, way or another. One way or another, <laughs> yeah. What What do you think that people – I actually, that was not my final question. <laughs> Maybe this one will be. Um, there is – a fascination I think in Europe with you know the fall of the United States of America um and there's definitely a sense of separation you know we really like to think that what's going on over the pond is you know is American and it doesn't really have much to do with us now you are an American who's been living in Europe and the UK for the past 15 Years? Oh God, I don't even know anymore. Don't even know anymore. <laughs> um, almost twenty years, God. Yeah. Almost twenty years. There we go. Um, yeah. You, I mean, would be the first to argue that it's incredibly naive to think that what's going on in the U.S. isn't happening over here either. What do you think that um, British and European people can learn from what, like the the, the U.S.'s reaction to um, to COVID or the reaction of you know international conglomerates 
about you know the, the patents and the pharma and all of that stuff what i see on this side of the pond of people looking over at the us is that no matter how bad things get so the uk it's been their response to covid-19 has been shambolic under yeah. boris johnson but what i'm hearing on the streets of london and in the pubs is that well at least we're not america Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm hearing that in France. France is, you know, despite the numbers are really high, I'm seeing a lot of adherence to like masks and social distancing. Um, I don't know if there's, there is a basic, if we want to be all Alexis de Tocqueville or however you pronounce his name about it, there is, or Hofstadter wrote about this a lot in the 50s, 60s, about the paranoid psychology of American voters. I think there is a certain there's something about America, and we this is such a long discussion, that makes Americans more paranoid, that makes us believe that the rest of the world is out to get us, which makes it so that conspiracy theories and the the Wallaces and the Trumps can get elected so easily. Um, well, it's individualist culture. It's a very individualistic culture. Yeah. And I'm seeing less of that in Europe. And I think I'm hoping that that's one lesson that we can learn. But what I'm seeing is that even, you know, there were huge demonstrations um, in London that were like anti-lockdown, anti-mask wearing of people who were just like, I don't want to, it's my right to not wear a mask. It's like, what are you, what have you learned from us? Um, yeah. I don't, I, I, populism is something that's not reserved to America. We're seeing it in Brazil. We're seeing it in Poland. We've seen it in Australia. We've seen it in Greece. We've seen it in all corners of the world. And it's this, you know, as I was talking to one of the the chick from the um, biotech company, she was like, we want results now. We are an instant gratification culture. And what these populist presidents do is they propose to solve massive problems easily and quickly. Right. And that's what we want. We want like, oh, you know, I just want to be able to click on something for it to be done. I want instant gratification and validation. And that's what I'm seeing. It's kind of like, and I hate to quote Louis C.K. Sorry, I know he's been canceled. <laughs> but he had this great stand-up comment, you know, skit where he was like, people complain about what you get out of a basic life. Out of a basic life, you get air, you get to eat bacon, you get to fall in love, you get to have sex. That's a basic life. But now people want to add all these things, like getting Wi-Fi in a plane. Where is it that you get Wi-Fi on a plane? I'm like, I don't know. But we expect it. We expect this instant gratification. So I've, I see this with the vaccine hunt. We wanted the vaccine by election day. That's not going to happen. These things take time. Complicate, you know, capital. There are arguments that, you know, mass consumption, degradation of the environment is what led to COVID-19. We are destroying our natural resources, depleting, you know, species. That this COVID-19 is not the first pandemic we're going to get in the modern age. It is just the beginning if we keep destroying the environment. And what people want are quick solutions to complex problems. And I'm worried that, you know, that's going to be an issue moving into the future, that if you want to avoid COVID, maybe stop chopping down the rainforest, maybe, you know, stop flying everywhere, maybe take care of the environment, maybe let's take care of some protected species, I don't know. And then invest in antimicrobial research, get the pharma industry in line so that we all don't die of gonorrhea or whatever, um, there's, there are solutions out there, but they're complex and they require people to set their ideologies aside and discuss facts and realize that just because you disagree with me, you're not a bad person. It's not like my entire identity rests on 
my political views that I could slap on a t-shirt and let's find a solution. Yeah, I think that's um, such an important point and one that we'll probably end on. Uh, just that every single problem is multifaceted, extremely complex and flawed. There is no one size fits all. There is no solution actually to anything because in a globalized world like ours, in an interconnected world, I mean, it, it's a butterfly effect. Every single action has a butterfly effect. Um, and what we have to do is we have to do our best. And in order to do our best, integrity and honesty is absolutely key at this stage. Like companies being honest about what they're doing. Pharma being honest, honest. about the kind of profits they need yeah. maybe or they think they need and the kind of research that needs to be done. Like as long as you're honest and long, when you have integrity, then you can start to open up the conversation that leads to innovation. And that includes the public. And I think that's what we're seeing now in a sort of interconnected age as well. Like the public does want to be included in these kinds of decision makings. Um, but yeah, it's extremely complex. Uh, we've definitely only just scratched the surface, but this has been so interesting. Thank you so much. Uh, why don't you tell, me. oh, pleasure. Why don't you tell people where they can reach you? Oh. Um, if you I'm would on, like to be reached. I would like to be reached. I'm on LinkedIn, um, Charlotte Kilpatrick. You can also email me at charlotte.kilpatrick, that's K-I-L-P-A-T-R-I-C-K, at gmail.com, and send me hate mail if you disagree with me. That's cool. <laughs> um, I don't tweet. Do you tweet? No. No, I don't. No, tweet. I don't get it. I've never gotten it. I, I don't get it. No, I, I'm lying. I did get it once when I was, like, in my early 20s, and I started to think in, like, 150 characters. I was like, oh, I need to, like, I was thinking in tweets. I was like, I need to get off this platform. It's off not Twitter. I mean, that's yeah. one of the things I've realized in my almost approaching middle age is get off Twitter. World. <laughs> so if everyone got off Twitter, what a better world it would be, especially Donald Trump. I don't know. If Donald Trump was off Twitter, then he might start doing things. Like maybe it's good that he stayed distracted by the on incoming the tweet sounds. And, yeah. <laughs> God, that Okay, that's what. Hey, listen. Where can people find your writing on this? Oh God, I'm. I'm. I wrote something at Salon. So you just type in Charlotte Kilpatrick, um, why Americans are paying twice for the same vaccine. I'm at managingip.com, although we have a really heavy paywall, but you can reach some of my articles on there. Um, I post things on oh, Facebook. I post some things on Facebook if you want to see my rants with my racist dog. Okay, we're going to wrap up. Uh, you can find Charlotte by Googling her and by emailing her. Her expertise is available for hire. Right, Charlotte, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been amazing. Thank you. Hello, 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 everyone. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot. I hope you got a lot out of it. As I said at the beginning, if you would like me to do a follow-up with Charlotte, uh, please do not hesitate to get in touch. She's uh, actually just emailed me this morning to tell me that there's a lot of new developments going on. So get in touch on our social media pages at Platform Enterprise if you want to hear from her again. If you enjoyed the show, please, please, please leave us a rating, leave us a comment, leave us a, I don't know, a couple of stars or whatever it is on whatever platform you're listening to this on. It really, really helps us spread the word um, of these incredible people that we are interviewing. Speaking of which, our guest next week is Brad Vanstone, founder of Willowcroft, which is one of the fastest growing vegan food companies in the EU. It's not one to miss, so I'll see you next time. Thank you very much for listening.